And so my dearest, closest friends all became Jewish, you know, and so being welcomed into their world for holidays, meeting their families, etc. I found that there was something in their homes, the warmth, the generosity that reminded me of my own, you know. Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashidenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. Today's conversation will be a little bit different because we will be talking about Judaism, but we'll be doing it through the lens of multi-faith encounter. I am so happy to welcome as my guests today, not one, but two people. The first is my friend and my teacher, Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Kramer. She is a professor of religious studies at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, where she directs our multi-faith studies department. And she is the visionary leader of a, a wonderful grant we have working on campus chaplaincy for a multi-faith world. And we are joined also today by Dr. Saed Atshan, who is a professor of peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College. I'll ask him to talk a little bit more about himself, but he's a Palestinian Christian who is also a Quaker. And Nancy and Saed are wonderful and powerful partners together in multi-faith conversation. Thanks to both of you for being here today. Welcome. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. I'd like to ask you to begin um, by helping us to frame our conversation today. That when I started speaking initially to Nancy, I've seen both from her example and learned from her teachings and at her invitation have experienced myself how much conversation across faiths can be a deep form of engagement, an invitation for transformation, and a powerful spiritual practice. She agreed, obviously, and thought that the richest way to proceed would be to model it in this very conversation. And so we invited Saed to join us. So can I ask both of you to reflect a little bit about multi-faith encounter as a form of a practice that can cultivate resilience and, and much more? Yeah, I'll start, Deborah. Um, for me, uh, multi-faith has been one of the great gifts of my life. Um, because I have been on this journey of encountering people of other faiths, I have the opportunity to meet people like Saed, people whose light shines, and who I get to sit around and talk to them about what does their faith mean to them? What are the practices that cultivate them being in the world in that way that I so admire as, they, as I watch them walk through their lives. So it's just a huge opportunity for me to be here and to be in conversation with Saed. I wanted to say that first. So the frame that I would give to my work is simple, very simple frame, but I'm gonna start by telling you a story. Back in 2003 or four, we had a grant to bring together Muslim and Jews who were emerging leaders to talk about all the hard issues that are in our community communities and uh, between our communities. And I ran a retreat at a retreat center north of New York City with 20 young Muslim and Jewish, very smart people. And we had a hard, difficult time together. We spent three days just 
talking about what's hard in our communities. This was 2006, felt like a hard time then. Looking back, it looks like a pretty good time compared to what we're living in now, but then it was a hard time. And um, we were, um, Jews and Muslims are not known as either group for being like particularly happy. <laughs> so there was another group meeting at the conference center at the same time, and it was a group of happiness researchers. And we kept watching them. They looked pretty straight, normal people. But one of them was wearing saffron robes. It turned out that was Matthew Ricard, who's known as the happiest man on earth. So on the last day, my people said to me, you know, can we stop talking about all this hard stuff and just go hang out with Matthew and find out why he's the happiest man on earth? <laughs> and um, we did. And and uh, I'm telling you this story, though, because for me, all the ground rules that we set when we sit down together and we say, now only make I statements and do this and do that, some of that takes some of the joy out of it. And what I've learned is that we, I tried mostly, mostly when I think about interfaith, not to talk about the rules for dialogue, but to talk about what are the grounding virtues how do we begin this work from a sense of gratitude, from a sense of joy, from a sense of possibility, curiosity, wonder? And how do we move from there as we do the work, the hard work of listening to difference? How do we bring up these traits that are so necessary, the humility, to bring up the loving kindness that we have, the attentiveness, the awareness. And I'm talking about Matthew Ricard because he didn't become attentive overnight. He didn't become happy overnight. It happened because he spent a whole lot of time practicing. So practices, I'd be really curious to know, Saed, because I so admire you and the work you do. Do you also resonate to the idea that practices of cultivating virtue is really a way to begin to talk about all this? And how, do, how does that work in your life? Yeah, thank you so much, Nancy. It's an honor to be able to serve as your interlocutor. And I'm thrilled that Deborah was able to extend this invitation to us. And I think the question that you posed and the question that Deborah posed earlier really resonates, whether it's, you know, regarding virtues or this idea of multi-faith experiences as being, you know, very spiritually grounding and these kinds of conversations across religious differences, um, helping anchor us in our own traditions and to see our own humanity and the humanity of others. I think that growing up, you know, as a Palestinian in Israel-Palestine, which is a part of the world that, you know, whether you like it or not, you have to accept the fact that this part of this piece of land is holy to all three Abrahamic faiths. And it's, it's significant to Jewish Israelis, it's significant to Palestinian Christians, such as myself, and it's significant to Palestinian Muslims. And we have to find a way to coexist and to understand that the same spaces that we inhabit um, are, are just as profound and just as laden with spiritual value for all of us. And so how can we have more spaces for more conversations? I think that the Quaker tradition has really resonated with me very deeply. The idea that there's a light of God in every human being, that we see a spiritual worth and we see spirit in everyone, regardless of what uh, tradition that they personally identify with. So I love that radical openness within the Quaker tradition. And what that's done is that it's allowed the Quaker community actually to integrate all kinds of members, whether it's what we call birthright friends, you know, people who were born into the tradition or what are called convinced friends, people who later came to embrace the tradition. Those convinced friends 
come from traditions and they bring those practices with them. And so, you know, there are Jewish Quakers, there are, you know, fewer, but they, there are, you know, Muslim Quakers, there are Hindu Quakers, etc. And in some cases, they may leave that tradition behind and they may embrace a new set of theology, doctrine, etc. Or sometimes they actually want to synthesize those in very, very powerful ways. And I find that it's incredibly inspiring when people are able to integrate those traditions in, in such a powerful way and that we're able to, to create spaces where that's possible. Uh, so that, that, you know, this is just in a nutshell to some of the thoughts that came to mind after hearing um, the questions that you and Nancy posed. That's lovely. And I think for sure, incredibly important teaching for me is very much parallel to the Quaker tradition that you raised up is that mandate from the book of Genesis that talks that every human being was created, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, that also impels me to listen and to talk and to be open to and to reach for empathy and reach for understanding in, in every encounter. I don't always rise to it, to it but I strive toward it. It's, I'd love to talk a little bit more about grounding virtues. Um, you know, you both touched on some of those principles. And it's, I think the framing of toward happiness and toward connection and toward joys and toward virtues is such a different approach than either solely being grounded in story or solely being grounded in the limits and in the barriers. Can each of you reflect a little bit more about that? Well, I would like to say something about... Um, Abraham Joshua Heschel at this point, only because he has been such an important teacher to me. Before I ever heard of Brene Brown and her viral TED talk about vulnerability, um, if you don't know, I'm sure you do, that she teaches that leadership and human relations and parenting, everything goes better when you start from a point of vulnerability. So long before Brene Brown, I learned from Heschel that um, interfaith dialogue has to start at the place where we don't know and where none of us know and where we meet each other in our fear and our vulnerability and our longing. And it's from that place that we build the relationships. Um, so that's been really helpful for me as a grounding. I went to a conference recently where they asked me to speak on the topic of what I want non-Jews to know about Judaism. And I thought, no, really? That's what I'm supposed to talk about? I don't want to lecture them about what I want them to know about me. I want to sit there and talk to them about how none of us know what we need to know right now to live in this world, because we are in really challenging, if not alarming, times. And I feel like it's so important now for us to gather around our not knowing, and also around the practices that, none of, that some of us do know, from different traditions that help us to sustain us. What you're talking about in this podcast, Deborah, um, and what I have been learning from Buddhists and from Muslims and from Christians, um, there is a revival of interest in disciplines, in spiritual practices. Christians are talking about the Ignatian exercises. Everybody's talking about mindfulness meditation. Many, many kinds of embodied practices 
practices are becoming more interesting and important. And I do a practice called Musar, which is a traditional Jewish practice that's having a revival. Anyway, one of the most exciting things for me, Saed, is hanging out with people who are not Jewish and sharing that. So I would like you to talk very specifically, if you don't mind, about what is your discipline? What is your practice? Um, what do you do to help exercise the muscles that allow you to then, when you're in those hard places, show up that way? Yeah, I think that being a professor, you know, it makes that a lot easier in terms of, you know, I just have sort of a captive audience, so to speak, you know, in my classroom, I have students at Swarthmore, you know, our students come from all 50 states, they come from all across the globe, every single continent. I mean, so many different religious traditions, and that's represented in and outside of the classroom. And so having to model that in the classroom to create a space that everyone feels welcome, everyone is the first class citizen, everyone can use I statements, everyone can speak from experience, but to deep, deep listening and that empathy and that compassion and that intellectual curiosity about the other and not going in from this position that, you know, I want to lecture you and I want to enlighten you, but to also be open and to receptive to being changed, to being, having that be a dialectical or reciprocal kind of exchange. Uh, we do have an interfaith center on campus and that's, I, when I was a student at Swarthmore, I was an interfaith intern and now as a professor, I really support our interfaith center, the work that they do, uh, and also we have storytelling, story sharing, you know, where we create a space where students from different traditions come together and we, we assign students, you know, a certain number of minutes to speak and to share one particular story, and then we open it up and Part of the practice is that once you share, you're, you're supposed to remain silent and you're supposed to actually receive the feedback and comments from those who were around you and they share what resonated with what you, with what you shared. So now you're listening to how your personal narrative has, has reverberations for hmm. others. So this has become an increasingly popular space and, and activity that we have on campus. Wow. And I think that you know, we should, it would be wonderful if we could model that in the world outside of academic spaces as well, outside of spaces that are not so heterogeneous, because so often we find ourselves in these silos, intellectually, politically, yeah. spiritually, and to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. It's, it's hard. It's hard work, but yeah. it's invaluable. Yeah, that's well, a beautiful I, I, practice. And I think one of the things that you're both kind of pointing toward is, I think one of the challenges that we face is there are so many people in the world who are so certain at this moment. Yeah. They're so certain of their analysis and they're so certain of their prescription. And one of the things that I think that we're talking about here is backing away from that certainty and committing more toward relationship and more toward the potential for transformation. Um, and I think that, and, and listening, and openness and empathy are really critical elements of that. I think it's one of the things that I really struggle with as a communal leader is how to be muscular about this kind of progressive approach that is about easing off of certainty in the face of so many people who are so loudly certain. So I love that this, this practice that you, you just put forward. And I think you're exactly right. That's, that's very much what we have to be modeling and promoting. Um, I've been really excited by the rise of something like the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, which is 
is about eating together and about being together rather than about conventional dialogue. You know, let me, let me talk first, then you respond. It seems it's toward building community and connection more than toward the lecturing that you're talking about. Well, I would just say that in the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, we also are doing tech study, which is very exciting. And that's actually a new frontier. You're absolutely right. The Jewish and Muslim women in our 125 chapters for the last two, three, four years have been building up through relationship building, eating together, children, etc. But we are now developing a tech study program for them that I'm doing with Dr. Homei Raziad, who's my Muslim counterpart, friend, um, colleague. And we're going to be doing Jewish and Muslim sacred texts and developing a way of reading them actually based on a Christian model of Lectio Divina, of sacred listening and reading, that we're going to be teaching to the chapters so that they can study text together. Just wanted to share that. Oh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. And Deborah, just to go back to also what you were saying about certainty and people who are so certain, you know, about their convictions. And I, I think the need to resist that. I absolutely agree. I cannot more. One of the challenges is how we do that and how we strike that balance in a political context of quote unquote alternative facts, you right. know, and this kind of post-truth moment now where you know, everything is contested. And so it's, it's, there, there are certain lines, you know, there are certain lines that we have to draw and I, and I, then that's okay to do so. You know, the idea, of, you know, Holocaust denial, for example, I mean, right, there, right. there is, there does get to a point where, you know, we have to be careful not to enable this, this notion that, you know, everything is contested and everything is, is, uh, is to be questioned, that, that can be a slippery slope. There are you know, fundamental principles that we right. can hold dear and we can hold on to very, very passionately. And in some ways we must in this political climate that we're living in. But at the same time, uh, I think that maintaining that openness and maintaining that humility and being open to uncertainty and being open to understanding that all of us are evolving, all of us are transforming, all of us are changing, none of us are static. I, I at the age of 33, am not the same person that I was five years or, ago, or five years before that. And so that's really what gives me the patience to do this kind of work, is to, to look at my own journey, but also to see in others potential for growth and potential to, oh, that you can plant seeds and not see the results immediately. But I've had so many cases where people have come even several years later and said, you know, I'd like to apologize, or there's something that you said, and only now has it finally registered, you know, looking back. And those conversations can be so beautiful. So I never, ever dismiss anyone. I see potential in everyone. Oh, it's amazing. Saed, could you tell us just uh, one thread of your story and how you come to embrace the evolution and potential so deeply? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, to give you an example, when I, I mentioned arriving at Swarthmore as a, as a student, and so I, I started in the fall of 2002, and you know, I grew up in Palestine, and you know, I had limited encounters with Jewish individuals. You know, the, the only ones that I was familiar with were soldiers or settlers you know, in, in the West Bank, you know, et cetera. And so uh, I arrived in a community that has a very significant Jewish population. And I remember the head of the 
Jewish student organization had work Kippa, and when he would see me, we didn't know each other in my first year, and he would pass by me. He always had this big, beautiful smile, you know, very, very, very warm. And I remember it kind of threw me off at first, and I was thinking, why is he smiling so much? Why is he being so effusive, being perplexed? It was something I was accustomed to, you know. And one day he just knocked on my door in my dorm and he introduced himself. He said, I'm Michael, etc. And and I started to learn more about him that he identified as Orthodox, but socially he was very progressive. He was for LGBTQ rights and politically he was very progressive as well. And it had never occurred to me that that was even possible that you could be Orthodox and socially progressive and even politically progressive. And so we became very good friends, very, very dear friends. We're, we both went on to Harvard together for graduate school. We're very, very, very close. And my best friend, in college ended up being, you know, Ben Schwartz, who was in my class, who's also from a Jewish family. My dearest, closest friends all became Jewish, you know, and so being invited to their homes, you know, being welcomed into their world for holidays, meeting their families, etc. I found that I could connect to them much more than I could to my traditional wasp, you know, classmates and friends. I found that there was something in their homes, the warmth, the generosity, there was something about their parents, their mothers, that reminded me of my own, you know? And so seeing those parallels so strongly in terms of affect, in terms of emotion, in terms of intensity, in terms of body language right now, you know, my, you know <laughs> there was just so much there. And when I was 15, I could have never imagined that that day would come. If someone said, when you get to college in the U.S., you're going to be Jewish, I could have never, ever imagined being a best man in those weddings, etc. Uh, but 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 I'm in many ways I think that that being open to that was I feel so blessed that I was receptive to it and also that they had the generosity of the spirit of spirit to engage me as well. I mean I have tears in my eyes. I feel like you've just kind of described a little bit of a, like a messianic potential, and it sounds like that that experience shaped your your whole life. It sounds like it, your vocation and your professional and academic interests. Yeah. Absolutely. So I just want to say, Saed, that I love that you said you're 33 because I'm 66, and I oh, that's wonderful. I wouldn't want to be one week younger. <laughs> because if I were one week younger, I wouldn't have had the last week I had, which was at a conference at Howard University that I'd never been to Howard University, and hanging out with people talking about Black Panther, the movie, with a whole lot of Black Americans that I had never met before so i i'm moved by your story and i think we have we make an interesting bookends <laughs> i mean nancy you began by saying that you felt like this that, that um multi-faith work has been a great blessing in your life is there a story that you want to tell we're actually going to be winding down so this would be a powerful way to end um well, I guess what I would say is just how things change. I mean, I got into this work because I was moved by Christians who were so concerned about the Christian complicity for the Holocaust that they wanted to rethink Christian theology. And these Christians were so impressive to me. I was so, I, was, I just couldn't believe how their moral fervor was so great that I wanted to go study with them and learn with them. And I majored in Jewish 
Christian relations. And then along came 2001 and I realized, wow, I've spent all these years telling Christians how they need to clean up their act. And now the shoe's on the other foot a bit because now I'm an American non-Muslim looking at how Jewish tradition and my American tradition needs to understand something they don't understand very well, which is Islam and Muslims. And I'm making this much shorter, but basically I saw my work with Muslims as a kind of way of honoring my Christian teachers, because they had taught me that the responsibility of someone who gets something from a tradition is also to clean up that tradition and to make that tradition as good as it can be. So I, um, I guess what I've learned and gotten from this work is just that I'm going to say reconstructionism, but that's, <laughs> that's the movement that I come from. That's the movement you're part of, that you lead. Um, what I learned from Mordecai Kaplan was that a tradition doesn't just hang out. It needs to continuously evolve multivocal, multivalent traditions that need to respond to the moral challenges of the times that they're in. And I watched Christians do it. I've been part of a movement now of Jews and Christians who are trying to do that in relationship to Islam. And um, it's just been an enormous strength for me. Um, you talked, Asayat, about seeing God in everybody. And what I learned from Reconstructionism is that there's truth in all the traditions, that we're not the chosen people. We don't have a chosen legacy. Our tradition doesn't have a truth with a capital T. And so my sort of mantra has always been, hey, if there's someone out there who knows something about God, knows something about how to live well in this world, knows something about finding meaning, I'm all ears. And because I've had that openness, because I grew up in that tradition of Reconstructionism that said, you know what, we're all in this together. And there's no one tradition that has a better take on this. Um, we have one that we treasure, one that we love, and multi-faith work has helped me love it even more. But it's also given me the opportunity to really enjoy watching change. Something you said, Syed, I really was moved by the way you talked about change in yourself. I am talking about change in my tradition and the tradition of Christianity that I watched change post-Holocaust. I'm watching it now with young Muslims whose tradition is changing because they're in America and they're learning different kinds of things and changing. So all of that is just so, so inspiring in terms of living your own life and changing. Well, and Nancy, you said, yeah, it's very beautiful. And you said Reconstructionism doesn't believe that we have truth with a capital T. And as said, I think it's very important to talk about, we do have, we do believe, I think in truths with small yeah. T's and an S on the end and multiple pathways, exactly, um, which, which holds us accountable the way Saed was telling us. I think when I think about Reconstructionism too, I love how you talk about it, Nancy. And of, of late, I've been talking a lot about how deeply relational I think Reconstructionism is. So that it's not just the ideas and not just the theology or the practices, but also that ultimately it's grounded in the relationships and in the community and in the people. And this work, I think, pushes us, you know, we are called to do it within our communities and we are called to do it beyond our communities. That's part yeah. of the core insight of living in two civilizations, the Jewish civilization and the American exactly. civilization. And I think in the 21st century, it's also about looking beyond and looking to other communities. Um, I'm so grateful 
to both of you for the work that you do in the world, for the modeling and for the conversation and for the relationship with Nancy. It's a long-standing relationship, Saed. I hope this is the beginning of, of a long relationship. I'd like to thank my guests, Nancy Fuchs-Kramer and Saed Atshan for our wonderful conversation on Multi-Faith Encounter. For more information, for a lot of resources, you can go to our website, hashivenu.fireside.fm, or to our larger website, reconstructingjudaism.org. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience.